Lord, you know where every one of us is. You know the challenges and the struggles that we face. You know, Lord, the things right now that just seem like they have us on the ropes. And you know those things right now that we feel like we have on the ropes. You know those areas, Lord, where um, you know what's brought us into this room tonight. And be that whether it be the hand of a friend or a hunger or a desire of some sort, Lord, you know how to meet us right at that thing. And tonight, overwhelm us with your goodness. Consume us, Lord. Captivate us in your word that regardless of whether we have any framework to go from on this or whether we feel like this is old news, Lord, speak into our lives individually today. Give us those ears to hear. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, tear apart the veil, and Lord, bring salvation and hope and encouragement and challenge tonight. Oh, Lord, you can do through me what I cannot humanly do. So that's what I ask tonight. Not for you just to do something cool, not just to do something supernatural, but to do something that looks like, sounds like, and is you tonight. Where ministry takes place. Genuine, eternal ministry. So Lord, have your way. I commit myself this time to you redeem every second and have your way now we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume because I'm a guy with a mic or called pastor that what I'm telling you is the truth. I genuinely believe that any person who's worth their salt should challenge you to be in the Word of God and to test everything by it. Because if you don't use the Word of God to test everything, you're going to have to trust a guy and any human being other than Jesus, who is also God in the flesh, uh, any other person, they're going to be faulty. So you really just can't bank on that. You've got to have the genuine. Having said that, here's where we're at. A thousand years before Jesus walked on the planet as we know him to, there was a king named David. David was from a particular tribe of a person named Israel who had 12 sons, and therefore those are 12 sons have 12. Each one of them becomes a tribe once they have enough people. Of those 12 tribes, one of them is the tribe of Judah. Judah, by the way, is where we get the term Jew to this day. A Jewish person ultimately would make some form of claim to the Jewish people, but really... Let's see, we've got a problem there. Well, one way or another, understand, the point is, is that they would... Because there was a time when Judah was kind of identified as the, as the country, uh, as far as the people group, uh, they became Jews by name. Now, with that in mind, this particular king, lots of profound things happened before and with him. He is the second physical king that Israel as a nation has. The first was a guy with a great calling, but no consecration. He wasn't willing to be set apart unto God. This guy, on the other hand, God says, was a man after his own heart. He was a passionate guy. He was a songwriter. We know that because of the Psalms and Scripture of the 150, clearly 71 of them are clearly denoted as being written by him. That means the guy has, in essence, half of the songbook. That's a lot to be said. And so with David, you not only watch the what in the historical portions like this, but you also kind of get the why and the how through the songs as you kind of get where his heart was in all of this. Well, David was a guy, though he was a man with great passions and after God's own heart, he was still a man. And because he was a man, he was a man given often to very bad choices, some great choices and some really bad ones. Now, ultimately, from that, David would have a, a big family as well. David would have a big family, and one of his sons is a guy named Absalom. Absalom, what we read is that this guy was fine. He was as good-looking as a guy gets. And what we don't read, by the way, strangely enough, that he was super muscular or that he just had one of those faces that stop people or those eyes that pierced into your soul. What we read is that he had hair. He had lots of it. Matter of fact, he had so much hair that he would get a haircut once a year annually, and it would weigh, ru weigh roughly two to three kilos. Now, I needed a reference for that because I'm like, how heavy is hair anyways? I have a daughter most of you are familiar with, and she has lots and lots of hair. We've adopted her from China. She's roughly about this high, and her hair goes all the way down to her calves almost to her ankles by this point. So we asked her to do something for us. Could you help us here, honey? Could you weigh your hair? She puts it on the scale. Turns out that the entirety of her hair is one kilo. Now, the reason I say that is, and I'm like, girl, explain this one. This boy gets his hair cut once a year, and it's two to three times as heavy as all of your hair. 
That just says something. Nonetheless, he is a guy who clearly has a problem with his father. And there's a handful of reasons I won't develop for the sake of clarity in this. But ultimately, this boy, Absalom, seeks to kill his dad to take his throne. And David flees for his life. Now, how weird would that be on two levels? Because, see, David's a man, like all of us, we have several different hats we wear. You know, we could be a friend. Uh, you can have your position at whatever you do at work. You're calling in regards to what the Lord has called you. And there's different ways people know you. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. That's a lot of things. I'm, as far as the government's concerned, probably a threat because I'm a foreigner. You know, for all those people that are saying, oh, we have a problem with immigration in America. Funny, nobody was picketing when they were trying to kick us out. Anyways, I'm not bitter. Anyway, well, all of that said, hear me on this, though is that David, he's a father, and he's a king. And this is, on, this is hitting him on both levels. The, as a king, there's somebody trying to usurp his throne. So as a king, he has a responsibility, and his responsibility is to take all of the people that were, in essence, most of people from his household, and remove them because he doesn't want this guy coming in and killing all of the people of Jerusalem to take over. So David, in a selfless act, as a king, has to respond like a king and get those people out, including himself. But David's also a dad. And because David's a dad, how do you deal with the fact that your kid wants to kill you? Now, look at, I, I mean, that girl with the long hair, she's talked about killing people in their sleep. She only does it in jest. At least that's what makes me sleep at night. But, but all of that, I can't imagine. Now, look, at, we've had people before, gunpointed the whole bit, that have really wanted, you know, that have made really clear that that we probably that, that our existence wasn't exactly their favorite thing in the world. But it was never my child. And David has this weird thing about it, this weird cocktail of experience where as a as a king he has to think like a king to protect everyone. But as a dad, he doesn't want to see his kid want to kill him and how do you deal with that? So ultimately David flees and then the two, the two kingdoms, in essence, are in battle. The usurping son and the rightful king. And ultimately, what David says to his army is, look it, capture the kid, but don't hurt him. Now, I remind you, this is the guy leading the army, trying to kill him. And David goes, look it, whatever you do, just don't, don't be hurting him. And, and ultimately, David's commander, who has a different set of, of standards and ethics, he's one of those kind of guys that sort of steps out of like the expendables and he comes out and he's like, let's just kill him. And he kills him. And now what happens is though David and his army, the dad have victory still in all of that. David doesn't feel victory in that because his son just got killed, even though it was the son that wanted to kill him. And that's a weird place to be. So, as we look at it, we can look at it from the historical perspective of now there's the issue of how do we restore this rightful king to his rightful throne. So that's clearly what we're looking at. And if you go, oh, okay, I kind of get that from what I read. But for us personally, this David we know back in Second Samuel 7 was given a promise that from his lineage would come the Messiah, the greatest king of kings, who would redeem the entire world of their sin. That's our Jesus. That's how that steps in. And that comes from that promise in Second Samuel 7 that he would be the king over all. Now, the reason I say that is, is what about those who've said yes to Jesus? And please understand something here. Again, don't just believe me. Search the scripture. Jesus never just said, hey, if you're as, willing, as long as you're willing to kind of take my gift and say that I'm your savior, we're going to be good because the scripture demands that we call him Lord. And what that means is more than just Jesus, pay for my sins. Jesus, I hand my life to you and I give you permission to do whatever you want with it. And that's a very different, that's a very different stance than it would be just going, Jesus, you're my get-out-of-hell-free card. With that, then, what happens when you say yes to Jesus and he becomes the king of your life? There's a throne, if you will, in your heart. And by the way, for what it's worth, you're really never on it. As much as you may think you're on it, Ephesians 2 makes clear that the enemy of your soul actually is the one calling the shots until you hand it over to the rightful king. And that rightful king is Jesus, the one who paid the price on the cross for you, the one who rose again to prove that even death doesn't have dominion over him. So what happens when you say yes to Jesus and then something happens in your life where somewhere down the line you make that dumb choice for the moment to go, Jesus, I know that I still want to not go to hell and all of that, but for the moment I kind of want to put something else on that throne for a little bit. Now we can all agree that's utter nonsense. 
But it happens. And it happens because somewhere down the line, we get more aware of an appetite than we do the appetite filler. So now it's like, I'm single and Jesus, why aren't you giving me my, the, my spouse? Or I need this job or this house or this thing. And I just, by this point, I kind of figured it would have worked out and it hasn't yet. Or this person should have gotten nice to me by now. Or this situation should have cleaned up and it hasn't. And all of that, somewhere down the line, you kind of go, Jesus, okay, can I just ask you to scoot aside and understand God's a gentleman, so he's not going to kick down your door. He wants to be invited. Well, what we have in this chapter is what would happen when you bring the king back? back. So maybe, I mean, who knows, maybe you were brought into this situation tonight, however you got here, because somewhere down the line, somebody loved you enough to say you should come here. But what God brought you here for is because somewhere the the king isn't on his throne like he should be. Well, I'm here to plead on his behalf of what happens if the king were to. So what we really have is getting the king back on the throne. And by the way, can you see from this chapter, it's a long chapter, which tells us it wasn't an easy process, was it? It wasn't like people were like, hey, you're right. We were wrong. Come back on. And then verse 2, and David took the throne. Let's go to the next chapter. Clearly, there's an awful lot going on here. But what we do see are some of the benefits of that. And we also see, well, in essence, what we see is the result of when the king really does get back on the throne. Well, look at it with me. Verse 1, I remind you, Joab is David's commander. Absalom is David's son, and David is the rightful king. And because Absalom is, is dead, the king now, as a dad, is really torn up. And so Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for all the people heard it, say, heard it said that day that the king is grieved for his son. So the people stole back into the city as people who were ashamed to steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You get the idea here that David's actually not British. Now, pardon me for saying that because there's a very different way. David's got that Mediterranean blood in him, you know, and you talk to somebody and they're from Italy or they're from Spain or they're from Brazil, someplace where you kind of know it's kind of hot and their blood runs that way. You kind of know what they're thinking even before they say it because it's written all over their face. And David's not one of those kind of guys that's going to kind of hide it. And I'm not trying to diss either culture. David's one of those guys that, you, man, you're going to know it. And David is crying out because he's hurting, even though this guy wanted him dead. And I want you to realize there's a lot of ways that people kind of look at this text because ultimately David's going to get rebuked by his commander because his commander said, hey, 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 you're crying because the kid that your enemy's dead. You're aware of that, right? What's wrong with you? And of course, Joab says, you know, I kind of get the feeling if we all died, but he lived, that would be okay with you, which really isn't the case. Although I have a feeling David wasn't that hot on Joab by this point. But I want you to realize the heart of God in this. Now, whether you know it or not, God is not like you. And God is not like me. And can I just say, praise God. Because I really want to be more like him. And if I try to, you know, people say, oh, you know, an atheist is like, oh, we made God in our own image. If we made God in our own image, I don't want that God. I know what my image is kind of like, and I'm not into that guy. The reason I say that is listen to Ezekiel 33, verse 11. It says, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God does not look at someone and go, bam, ha, ha, ha. We would. And that's why we should be thankful we're not God. Because if you were God and I did what I've done to you, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you right now. And God didn't just so love the cool or the good or the praying. God so loved the world. And that includes Hitler. That includes Jack the Ripper. And that includes the horrible person that comes to your mind when you hear the term horrible person. All of that. God died for all of those people. And that's the point of it. That's why God's not like you. And that's why God's not like me. I was raised on those vengeance movies. You remember those? Some of you, they, they have a whole, they come every season. And that is like, now the season, by the way, is the daughters. Have you learned that? 
It's like before it was the wife, but then that kind of marriage thing isn't working out a lot. So now they have to steal a guy's daughter. And once they steal the guy's daughter and they torture her sooner or later, whoever the guy is has to rise up and rescue his daughter and kill the guy. Well, I knew I was in a problem when I'd watch these movies because it was like they tortured the poor gal for like an hour. And then the guy kills him for like a minute at the end of the thing. And I didn't get a relief in that. I'm like, torture the guy. Look at what we had to go. And I know that's not healthy. And the reason I say that is, is that what David is demonstrating is even though this guy was his enemy, he was still someone he loved. Now, whether you know it or not, the book of Romans tells us that even when we were enemies in our hearts to God, he still sent Jesus to die for us because that's the real loving father. And you need to know, no matter how much you want to fight God, he's not going to stop loving you. But he really does call out and say, why don't you just surrender? What in the world are you fighting? You are going to lose. And at best, you're running out of time. So at this point now, David is weeping and Joab gets in his face about it. Verse 5. Joab, I remind you, is his commander. For what it's worth, we'll read later, uh, for what it's worth in First Chronicles, that David has two sisters. One sister's name is Abigail, and the other sister's name is Zeruiah. It's a really kind of fun name. That's, by the way, First Chronicles chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, so you know. Uh, Zeruiah, and you see it's spelled here. You can figure out how to say that. It's the, it's, the spelling just makes you, it's like my mouth does weird things just looking at the word. Well, he has these two sisters, Zeruiah and Abigail, and he has, and both of his sisters have children. Now, this is kind of simple math if you put it out. David has sisters. His sisters have sons. What's the relationship between them and David? Excellent. They're nephews. They're David's nephews. They're his sister's sons. His sister Zuriah has three sons. One of them's now dead. Asahel, but the first one, by the way, is Abishai, Joab, the guy we see here, and Asahel. Uh, and so what that tells us is that this kid, this guy, this commander is David's nephew. His other sister, Abigail, has a son too, and his name is Amasa. Important because Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. The guy that actually tried to kill David. And so imagine, so it's not just that your son wants to kill you, but he is recruited now as the commander, your nephew. It's all in the family. Well, with all of that said, Joab gets in his face and he says, look, you've disgraced us today. And then, you know, uh, the people who saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters, in the, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, verse 6, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. You've declared, for I, you have declared today that you regard neither princes or something. In other words, you don't even care who's who. What you've declared today is it really doesn't matter whether the guy's a prince or the guy is just a, you know, kind of a peasant. In the end of it all, they're kind of all in the same in your eyes. Which, by the way, that's, that sounds like a good king. For I perceive that if Absalom had died and all of us had, I'm sorry, had lived and all of us had died today, that it would have pleased you well. And therefore, arise, go and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, no one will stay with you this night. And then it'll be worse for you than the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. In other words, like, look at you think it's bad now. You keep playing this game and everyone's going to bail on you. And then let's see how that works out. Now, please hear me on this. Because God's not like us, that means we're different. And, and I tell you, we could get caught if you're anything like me. I'm a natural fighter. I grew up fighting, actually trained to fight, and I fought competitively. That doesn't make it any better. All that means is I organized the way that I tried to hurt people. But, and, you know, and, and sometimes they actually knew I was determined to do that. Well, well, all of that said is that sometimes I could still get in there where I'm in a conversation and I'm, I'm all about winning the argument. Or I'm all there making sure I get my point across and they have to realize they're wrong and I'm right. And you realize in the end of it all, it's not about winning the argument as much as it is about winning the person. And that's what we see with David versus Joab. Now, the people there, they're like, oh, we saved the king's life. And I kind of get the idea, to be honest, not that if all of them had died and, jo and Absalom had lived, they would have been okay. But David, I have a feeling, would have rather have died himself. And had Absalom lived than the other way around. Well, with that in mind, David then, what does he do? Verse 8, 
He gets up, goes to the gate, and all the people saying, there's the king sitting at the gate. That's where a king goes, by the way, to be. There's two places a king hangs out. He hangs out in his palace. You can only go there by appointment. And he goes at the gate, which is where he's approachable. And now, in other words, David's gone among his people. There's something to learn from that, too, by the way. Because when you get hurt and somebody does something nasty, and let's face it, chances are it's a pretty good possibility it's not going to be as bad as what David's experiencing here. Don't you want to just go hide, tuck yourself in your room and grab Netflix for the day or whatever? Well, understand, David here is in a place where he needs to, it's like, don't forsake the fact, though you are a dad, you're still caught, you still have a calling, David. And don't usurp your calling just because your heart's broken. And I can tell you that weird things have happened in the years since we've been here. And it's like, had it not been the fact that the Lord makes clear, hey, this is your calling and do what I've called you to do. It's the natural thing is to go and you retreat and isolate and insulate because, man, when things seem painful, you just don't want to be near people. Well, the people came before the king and everyone in Israel had fled to their tent, of course, before that. Verse 9, now we start to see the result. Now the king is now in a place where he's at the gate, which means David is going to be reinstated, but he's not in Jerusalem's gate. Now all the people, there was a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. That's, by the way, their enemies as well. And now he has fled from the hand of the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, notice, who we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So now get this. These were the same people who, who by the way, jumped, at the, uh, jumped in the army, if you will, of Absalom and wanted to kill his dad. And now they're talking because Absalom's dead. And they're like, you know what? If we really review things, what has Absalom ever given us? Nothing. And a job would be like, well, you know, he set my field on fire. The, you get the idea that people look at it and go, you know, if we start to review the history, our history says there was only one guy who really saved us and only one guy who really delivered us. And might I say that when it comes to getting the king back on the throne, there comes a point in our lives where we kind of come to. Like we kind of sober up, like we pop out of our coma for a moment and we go, what in the world am I thinking? Why am I chasing this, which I know can't satisfy at the expense of this person, this God who I know can? All the way back, or we'll find in the Gospel of Luke 15, I believe it's verse 17, we know the story of the prodigal son. By the way, it's important to recognize prodigal is kind of the word that kind of means living a real party lifestyle. Prodigal does not mean the guy who came back. So he was a prodigal son, but then he was an ex-prodigal the moment he came home, if that makes sense. So, you know, we would say, oh, bye, hey, the, hey, you guys, you kind of prodigal. Well, that says a lot more than just you came back. Well, in this case, remember, in the prodigal, this was a guy who took his dad's inheritance, and he went out and he really did live the prodigal lifestyle. He went out and partayed. And as he partied, he ran out of money. And when you run out of money in that world, you know what happens. You run out of friends. Actually, might I even say it this way. When you run out of money, your friends run out on you. Now, with that, now the guy is starving. He has nobody to rely on. And somewhere down the line, by verse 17 of Luke 15, he says, it says he came to himself. And he said, how many of my father's servants have bread to spare? And that's just his servants. And here I am perishing from hunger. You can see him going, what am I thinking? I mean, like the guys that just the butler in my dad's house, the guy, the gardener in my dad's house, the guy that just takes out the bin bags. That guy's got food to spare. That guy's got a full fridge. And I'm here feeding pigs and wanting to eat. In other words, I'm rummaging through the dump trying to find something to eat. Where am I at on this? And that will begin his process of heading back home. But please hear me. Just because you have this moment does not mean the next step takes place. It says the people of Israel here, notice, the, all the people of Israel started to argue. And what they argued is, you know, we know who the rightful king is, so why aren't we talking about bringing him back? You know what the problem is? The word talking. You'd think somewhere, we know who the rightful king is, why aren't we bringing him back? Talking about it isn't going to get us there. And what we're going to find by the end, if you, as you read through it, is Israel still doesn't bring him back. They're like, well, we can all agree 
that who the rightful king is. And just because somebody agrees that Jesus really does belong as the king of our lives does not mean they're going to make him that. Just intellectually agreeing again is maybe winning the argument, but it is not winning the person. And these people are like, oh, what's wrong with you? But David, on the other hand, verse 11, he speaks to the two guys that are priests, Zadok and Abiathar. And you're aware Zadok becomes the people that, that from his family are the Zadokites who become the Sadducees later. Well, he talks to these two priests and he says to the speak to the elders saying, why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? So in other words, David's catching wind of this. And he's like, you know, it seems like everyone's talking about bringing me back. Now, hear me on this. It seems like everyone's talking about bringing me back, but nobody's bringing me back. That's kind of weird. And it's even weirder because of all the people who should bring me back. You were the closest to me. And if you were the closest to me, shouldn't you be the first to want to bring me back? Because you knew more than anyone how great it was to hang out. You were intimate. We were close. Now, I get the idea of someone that kind of knew me from a distance and they're kind of growing to know me. But you, man, we, we have so much history together. Shouldn't you be the first person to go, oh, man, I want this. I want him back. But notice who David goes to. David goes to the priests. He's like, this is a message not just for a messenger. This is a message for a priest. Now, a priest's job, perhaps you're aware of, is to represent God to man and man to God. And I think it's perfect. That's who David chooses. The job of a priest, by the way, for what it's worth, I challenge you to look on your own. Revelation 1.6 and Revelation 5.10, when we stand before Jesus at his throne, well, so you've made us kings and priests. Part of our role as a Christian is being a priest is representing God to man and man to God. We take an intercession, the concerns of men specifically that of their salvation to God, and we take the love of God to man. You know, for what it's worth, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin. Does anyone know where it's supposed to begin? At the house of God. When God wants to start a revival, consider this. The term revive means you had to have already been vived. Does that make sense? You can't redo something if you haven't done it before. Vive means alive. Vive means to live. Matter of fact, in most of the languages we probably have represented here, in one way or another, they're all words that mean live. Who can be revived? Only somebody who's been alive. Did you get me on that? When we're praying for revival, we can't pray for revival for the lost world because they've never been vived. The only people who have been vived are Christians. It's like, God, put life back in your church because we have the life of Christ. What are we doing by trying to put something else on the throne? And so David turns to the priests. And he's like, could you go talk to my homies? Talk to my family. I mean, when he's talking about this, that's his family. And he's like, could you tell them, how in the world is it everyone's talking about it, but no one's doing it? And, you know, you can go to church and we could say, oh, we need revival and we want to call down fire and we want to bark like chickens and we want to sweat like angels and, we, and all of these things. But in the end of it, what God, what God really wants for his church is to get back on the throne where he belongs. Because if we're like, God, I'm really cool with you serving me. I just have a real problem with me serving you. Well, then he's not on the throne like he's supposed to be. So why haven't you done this? Verse 12 says, you're my brothers, my bone and my flesh. Why then haven't you brought us back? And by the way, notice because he's got a problem with Joab now, verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? I remind you that's his other nephew. Even though he was the leader of Absalom's army, David's inviting him to be commander. God do so to me and more also if you're not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. For what it's worth, his name means burden. Now, he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as the heart of one man. So they sent word to the king, return you and all your servants. Then the king came to the Jordan and the king came to Gilgal. I'm sorry, Judah came to Gilgal to go and meet the king and escorted the king across the Jordan. Now, now everything changes. 
Because up to this point, David's still in essence where he was, Machanaim, in his hideout, while the battle took place because his own army said, don't you dare go into battle because all they really want to kill is you. So we want to hide you out. We'll go fight the battle. We'll come back when this thing is done. You stay safe. You're worth 10,000 of us. And so David, so now here's the point. Up to this point, there's talk. And maybe in your own heart you hear that. Yeah, I know that God is good, but listen, God isn't God. God is awesome. And the moment he's just good in your life, I think you're missing something. And here there gets to that point where like, you know what? You're right. I really need to get right. I know that I've been chasing after this dumb thing or trying to add this thing in my life. But by adding this thing that I know Jesus doesn't approve of, I'm asking him off the throne to put myself there, which really doesn't work. It's clear that the rightful king isn't there. And so finally, I'm like, what's wrong with me? You are my deliverer. You're the only one who's delivered me. You're the only one who's brought this salvation. So I need to turn to you. And it's like, okay, but now that I'm thinking about it, okay, let's just do it. Come back, please, and be the Lord of my life. And with that, then they escort him over. And now we start to see what happens when the king starts to get to the throne of your life again or my life again. First of all, he winds up in Gilgal. Gilgal is fundamental because Gilgal, perhaps you're aware of, was the place where in the book of Joshua, when the nation first crossed the Jordan to, come, to take the promised land, was the place where they consecrated by the way, it was the place where David's predecessor, Saul, had failed. He hadn't gone when he was supposed to back in 1 Samuel 10. So with that, this is what the first thing God does, is the moment you turn to him and you say, please take the throne of my life, he starts to consecrate. All consecrate means is to set apart. There are over, for instance, there are over 3 billion women in the world. Perhaps you're familiar with that. Some of you guys are like, well, then why don't we still not have a date? Well, anyways, but consider this. Of those three billion, one of them has a ring on her finger and my surname because she's my wife. She's still a woman. She never ceased being a woman. And can I say hallelujah for that? But, but in that, she is set apart from every other woman because she's my wife. We have two children, one biological and one adopted. They're both just as much daughter as the other. Both, of course, also with our surname, because neither is married yet, praise the Lord, since one's 13. Well, although, I, oddly enough, in some ways, she's kind of the older one. Well, with that, though, of all of the children in the world, those two are set apart because they're my children, and I take responsibility for them as my children. The Bible says this in 1 John 1, 9. In verses 8 and 10, it tells you you can do two other things with your sin. You can deny that it's sin or deny you've ever sinned, in which case you either lie to yourself or call God a liar. Neither is a good idea. But verse 9 in between, it says, if we confess our sin. Confess does not mean you get in a box and tell some guy. Confess literally, homo logamos is the word. Homo means same. Logos means logic or words. Lagos logic. And the idea is, God, you said this was wrong. I am agreeing with you. My words are now your words in this. We are agreeing in that. We are confessing our sin. It says, if we're willing to confess our sin, that's all God told us was our part. It tells us he, that's Jesus, is faithful to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one thing to forgive. The idea literally means to lift off and abandon. But it's another thing to say, you know what? I know that even the sin itself has dirtied you and I'm going to cleanse you as if this never happened to you. The reason I say that is that's the same idea. As the king comes over and you say, take the throne of my life, the first thing he starts to do again is set you apart. And the idea where God would say, as he said in Isaiah 40, he goes, look at, or Isaiah 42, he says, look at, I've called you by my name. You are mine. And what makes my wife different from all of the other wives of the world is this one is mine. What makes these children different from all the other children? Well, is these children are mine. And I know that's what you would hear in your heart of hearts if you were willing to let them. Well, with that in mind now, things start to happen as a result. Verse 16. There's this guy, Shemai. And if you haven't read through it to this point, you're not going to know who this guy is. And you just think, well, what in the world's going on with him? 
Shammai, by the way, when David was fleeing from his son Absalom, Shammai was from the lineage of the previous king from Saul. And this guy was just bad news. There's always a guy like this when you're having a bad day, isn't it? Usually that's the day that somebody freaks out on the bus. You know, something just happened. You thought you almost lost your job or you lost your wallet or your phone. And lo and behold, at that moment, some guy sits next to you and he just wants to erp in your lap or he just or he just thinks you're the sweetest thing since whatever. And you're like, this is not the moment for it. Well, David is fleeing from his son trying to kill him. And this guy's throwing rocks at him and he's cursing him. You stupid rotten. It's like, you know, sticks and stones may break bones. Words won't hurt you. So I'm going to grab stones, too. You know, like, you are. And of course, David's commanders are like, you know what? Why don't you just give me one shot, just one. I'll kill him with one shot. I am so tired of hearing this guy. And David, because of the situations he's done prior, he's like, I don't know, maybe God sent this guy to do this. Well, understand, there is a voice of condemnation. That's what Shammai was. And Shammai now realizing that David has gotten the rightful throne back, he's in a dangerous place. The easiest thing to assume at this moment is David's like, well, now that I'm back on the throne, well, the first thing I need to do is you, okay? Okay. You know, let's go and take care of the loud mouth. But that's not the case. Shemai, the son of Gerah, Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hastened to come down with the men of Judah to meet David. He was there with a thousand men, which means the guy had influence, right? Of Benjamin with him. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and we would develop that if there were time, but it's, we'll get that with Mephibosheth. And his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. The guy's got a crew as well. They went over the Jordan before the king. They were like the first to get there. And, and then the ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household to do what he thought was good. Now Shemai, this in the girl, fell down before the king when he crossed the Jordan. And then he said to the king, look at this guy's words. Do not let the Lord impute iniquity. That's the first word we see here to me. Or remember, wrong. That's the second word your servant did on the day that my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. That the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Look at those three words he uses. Iniquity, wrong, and sinned. You know, people, you know, I don't like to go to church because they only like to talk about sin. And isn't that an old word? Do you know why it's an old word? Because it's been with us since the first guy. By the way, there's other words like death. You know, you go to like a hospital and you're like, I don't want to go to the hospital because they keep using words like sick. You know, or they use words like disease. I mean, why don't they pick a new word? Because it's still the same problem. And in the same way, it's always been the problem with all of us. And what we have with this guy, if there was any guy deserving of death at this moment, Shammai would be at the front of the list. He'd be at the front of the queue, and he is in the front of the queue, but he's there begging forgiveness. For what? According to this, his iniquity, his wrong, and his sin. And remember what it said? That when you give yourself and you let the Lord take his proper throne, and you confess, your words agree with his, clearly his words are agreeing with David's. Jesus will be David's, from David's lineage, faithful to forgive that sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so look at what happens. He says, Therefore I'm here first today to come to you at the house of Joseph, and I want to go to meet my Lord the King. I'm declaring you Lord. Notice he says that. But David, remember, has these guys over here, Joab, his commander, and his brother Abishai. Remember those three guys that were the sons of Zariah, his sister? Well, Abishai is one of those three. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he's cursed the Lord's anointed? And David instead looks at the two of them and he actually rebukes Zeruiah. Or I said, sorry, he rebukes Abishai. David says, What do I have to do with you, sons of Zeruiah, that, I should be, that you should be adversaries to me today? In other words, David looks and he goes, This guy is trying to get right with me. You want him dead. You're kind of the opponent at the moment. Do you find that weird? By the way, it's similar when, they, when Jesus wants to walk through the area of Samaria and John and James, the sons of thunder, you know, look, and, the, and Samaria doesn't want to let him through. It's like a gang turf war. And they're like, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on these guys? And David and Jesus looks at his, these guys. And he's like, you don't even know what spirit you're from. He's like, you guys are so opposite of me at this moment. You don't look anything like me. Because Jesus is the one guy at any moment he wanted to. Someone's like, you can't get through it? Jesus is like, well, okay. But he didn't. He never did that. 
So why should we represent a God that's not that and call ourselves Christian? So he says to Abishai, look it. You're my adversary at this moment. Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I'm king over Israel? Therefore, the king said to Shammai, you will not die as the king's, and the king sworn him. Now notice, by the way, what David says is no other death is necessary. The death of the son that hung on a tree, because that's how Absalom died, was enough. So we don't need to kill another guy here. He confessed. Our last few verses, well, chunks of verses, but here it is. There's this guy, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is David's predecessor, the previous king's grandson. And he was somebody, by the way, normally when a guy takes the throne from another family, he kills that previous family so no one can rise up again to take the throne. But David didn't do that at all. This particular guy, when David was actually, when his grandfather was losing the battle, this guy was being, his nurse, if you will, was carrying him out. He was just a baby. was carrying him out and dropped him. And that fall broke his feet, so he was never able to walk. This was a guy that was fractured from the fall. And in his fractured from the fall, was never able to walk. Though an enemy of David, just as much, if you will, as Shammai was. But this particular guy, David looked at and he said, you know what? I would rather honor you. I'd rather, and he takes this guy and he brings him into his own house so that he can sit and eat with the king's sons. In other words, David adopted him. He made him his own son in that sense. Now, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. And again, another time where David gets to represent the Lord. And I remind you, David's not perfect. But there are these moments, like us, by the way, don't you want to represent Jesus? Don't you want people to look at you and go, oh, you remind me of Jesus. Unfortunately, not every moment is going to look like that, is it? Well, in this, unfortunately, when David was fleeing, Mephibosheth's servant came and lied to David and said, oh, that guy's going, ha, 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 David's getting his. And David believed it. So he took Mephibosheth's stuff and he gave it all to the servant. Instead, his name was Ziba, that guy up that we were just looking at, past, that we just kind of read past. But now we see Mephibosheth being brought to David as he's now taking his proper throne. And notice what it says. Verse 24, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes. Now, trimming your feet, I don't know how that's going to look like. The mustache thing, we get guys like that all the time around here. But not washing your clothes, that means he hadn't taken a bath either. Well, that's an entirely different story. And what's clear is when the guy shows up before David, he's clearly a mess. And what he's showing, by the way, is that from the time that David left, this guy's been mourning. This guy has genuinely been torn up. And can I just say this? When you try to take God out of your life, even a little bit, isn't there something inside of you that really grieves like that? It can't be tended to. It can't be polished anymore. It's the part of you that knows what it's like, how beautiful it is to be adopted as a child of God. Because the person that brings you such comfort and peace is not as present as he was before. And this guy's brought before him and David asks, why didn't you go with me? Mephibosheth, verse 25. Now imagine, Mephibosheth's like, well, first of all, let's just be clear, I can't walk, so it isn't like I was just going to get up and hop on over with you. But what he said in verse 26 is, oh my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I'll settle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant's lame. Clearly you know that. But he slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord is, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, you know what? You know, I didn't deserve to live in the first place. Do whatever you feel is right. Just can I just say, you've been duped by this guy. My servant has lied to you. I mean, clearly you look at the guy and it's clear that the guy has been genuinely torn up about it. But David does something interesting because I think he kind of fleshes out whether this is true. It says, you know, look at, for all my father's house were but dead men before my Lord the king, and yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right do I have? Now, notice the difference. Mephibosheth like, look at, I don't have any rights in this. And by the way, that's the mark of a true person who really declares Jesus Lord. It's like, I'm not going to demand rights. I don't have rights. You rescued me. 
So what right do I have to still cry out to the king? So the king says, don't speak anymore. Why do you speak anymore in your matters? I've already said to Ziba, you know, you and Ziba divide the land. Now notice what he says in essence is, look, at, let's just put it out to test. Let's just cut the land in half. You guys can each have half. And what Mephibosheth says is, you know what? Let him have it all. Why in the world would I care about land when you're okay? Because you're the only thing I really care about here. You've adopted me. You've clearly loved me. You've taken care of me. Why in the world would I care about land? I can't even walk on it. You know what's interesting? As while David is doing this, he has a bunch of kids, but one of them is roughly about 12, 13 years old, about as old as my youngest. And his name is Solomon. And I wonder what it would be like to be Solomon watching this. And what David says is, let's just divide it in half and see what you guys have to say about it. Because when Solomon, that boy, becomes king and he will take his dad's throne, but he'll get it rightly. But when he takes the throne, two prostitutes come in that both had babies and one of them clearly rolled on their baby and killed it. And, but they both now are fighting over the living baby to say, well, that baby's mine. So David says, I'm sorry, Solomon, the son, then says, well, cut the baby in half and give half to each. Now, that sounds really cool, but he's, he's fleshing this out. So one woman's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, just cut it in half. And the other one says, no, just give the baby to the other then. And, and Solomon goes, well, clearly that's the one, that's the mom, because she still cares about that. She'd rather have her baby living with the other woman than sawed in half, where the other woman just was more than happy to see the baby dead. And I wonder if Solomon got that concept from even looking at this. Well, with that in mind, then we have our last guy. And then we get to our point with the, with the Israelites. Remember who were all talk? Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Mujalim. By the way, he had helped David. He was 80 years old now. He's an old guy, which God says, he's, according to this. And Barzillai says he was a very aged man. By the way, David will only live to 70, which means David won't even make it to 80. I think that's weird because my father-in-law is almost 90 now when he wants to take a 1,500-mile trip across the United States. Anyways, well, um, you know, I think it's, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, yeah, a boy. Well, what's clear in all of this is that Barzillai, and I'll just kind of sum it up for the sake of time. Barzillai, David goes, you know what? You were kind to me. When David was fleeing, this guy's wealthy and old. He gives David a bunch of stuff. He goes, David, what's clear is you guys need some food. So let me just take care of you guys. And so now David wants to pay him back. David's like, you know what? Let me, why don't you come and live with me in the palace for the rest of your life. I mean, I don't know how many years you have left, if you have that, but why don't you come and die in the palace with me? And what Barzillai says, and again, this is paraphrasing, is he kind of goes, look it, I'm too old for that. Because, you know, at this point, I really can't even taste anything or see anything or hear anything like I was when I was a young man. When I was a young man, those pleasures meant something to me. But now, to be honest, that's really not where my heart is. And I love this about Barzillai. Because what Barzillai does is he doesn't just go, no thanks, king. He says, you know, on the other hand, I do have this servant. And when we get into the Chronicle letters, what seems clear is it may actually be his own son. His name, by the way, means their longing or desire, my real desire. And his name is Chimham. Who names their child? Chimham. Well, Chimham, by the way, he goes, could you just, whatever you would do to bless me, could you just do to him instead? And I love this because when the king takes his rightful throne, we stop being so concerned about the pleasures of the world and we start thinking beyond it. And that's clearly what Barzillai is doing. He's like, look at the temporary pleasure of the moment isn't going to mean anything to me compared to this. I have somebody I really care about and I'd rather you take care of him. And I realized when Jesus takes the throne rightfully in my life, like he should, that's what starts to happen. As all of a sudden, what I start to see is there's forgiveness and cleansing and consecration and things start to get put right. And then I start to see things very differently. I start to look and I look at you differently because you're now not just a moment for a temporary fix, but now you're someone to invest in for eternity. So David takes the guy and for what it's worth, in your own time, if you're the kind that likes to search this out, this guy is mentioned again in Jeremiah 41:17 because David puts him in his town town, which is Bethlehem. Now, there's a tradition, and I can't tell you because it's not biblical that it's totally true, but the tradition is that this guy, Chimham, actually goes and opens up what's called a caravansary. A caravansary was the old days, would be a Middle Eastern hotel. And by the way, as he opens up this hotel, it tends to go and make its way through in time. Clearly, it's still there in Jeremiah's day, or at least that Chimham and his land is still there in Jeremiah's day. But the reason I say that is the tradition says 
that a thousand years later than this, there is a couple and she's really, really pregnant and they wind up in Bethlehem and they want to go and they can't seem to find room in the inn. Does that sound familiar? The inn is a caravansary and instead they wind up in the stable or if you will, all we actually, all we really do read is that it's in a manger. So someplace where animals are appears to be something that's connected to this thing. And could it have been all the way from this guy? We don't know, but it's, cool to think about. So lastly, then we have these people, the people of, of Israel. Notice what it says in verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal and Chiham went with him and all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half of the people of Israel. Not all of them. Just then all the people or the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, hey, why have your, our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household and all the king's men with him across the Jordan? Hey, this was my idea. What are you doing? You're stealing my king. So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king's a close relative of ours, why are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Has he given us, I mean, are we doing this to sort of suck the king dry? Has he given us any gift? Verse 43, our last verse. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, we have 10 shares with the kings of the 12 tribes. There's 10 tribes here. Therefore, we have more right to David than you. We have ten twelves, five sixths. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? But the words, notice, of the men of Judah were fiercer. Now here's a cool word for us. Pisha, pisha, the word, by the way, kisha, sorry. The word for fiercer literally means more firm or more resolute than the words of the men of Israel. Now, don't get this. There was a group of people that had, had kind of were talking. We should probably bring the king back. Yeah, that would be kind of a good idea. Bring the king back. But while we're talking about it, nothing's happening. You know, you're right. He should probably be on the throne. Yeah, yeah he probably should be on the throne. Yeah, you know, let's sing songs. Jesus, you should probably be on the throne. You know, but nothing's happening. We're just talking. Meanwhile, there's another group of people who had intimacy with them that, like, you know what, that's not enough. Let's do this thing. And they go, and they, you, all right, come take the throne where you belong. Get there. And it's amazing. At that moment, the people who didn't do it look and go, hey, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? I'm just somebody trying to get the king back on the throne in my life. How in the world is that freaking you out? So there's an argument over it, but notice there's one group that's more resolute than the other. And you know who that is? Those that actually did it, didn't just say it. Now, Jesus would say, by the way, that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, he goes, there's two kinds of guys that build houses, those that build on the rock and those that build on the sand. And he goes, in that same way, both will have storms, both will have wind, both will have rain, both will have floods, but only one's going to last. And he goes, comparing that, both are going to hear the word. But one's going to do it. The one that hears it but doesn't do it, it's like the guy who builds it in the sand, but the guy who hears it and does what I say, well, it's like when he builds on the rock. James would say, by the way, don't just hear the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. Because the person who reads but doesn't do what it says is like somebody who looks at their face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what in the world they look like. You forget who you are when you read the word but then don't do it. And unfortunately, those people, by the way, can become theologians. They can start seminaries. They could be priests or, or clergy of whatever sort. They could be not that, but they can be that. They can have their own blog sites and discernment ministries and all of these other things. But they're not really doing it. They're just talking. And they get angry when the Lord really does something in someone's life like you. You know what's really interesting? By the next chapter, there is a guy, by the way, named Sheba. And he's going to go and go, all right, you know what? Who really wants David? Forget that. Let's just do our own thing. And all of Israel is going to follow him, which tells you that though they're willing to argue here, the heart's really not in it because if their heart was in it, they would have done it. And here's the point as we go to prayer. Tonight, you've heard now the challenge. I've heard the challenge that Jesus needs to be more than just Savior. Did he die on the cross for your sins? Yes. Did he die for mine? Yes. But he didn't just die, did he? That's half the story. 
by the way, for what it's worth, every human being up to this point that's dead has died. That should be simple. One did for your sins and mine, and that's God's only begotten son, Jesus. But he didn't just die. As scripture promised, he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again and is declared Lord of all. Now, in your life, have you accepted that gift of Jesus Christ? Because that gift is a gift not just of his payment, but of his, of now of his personality, of a relationship with him. Not just that the bill is cleared, but now his lordship over you. Because when you do that, he takes your life and he does something amazing with it. Because the same person who created the universe and the beauty of it, from every ocean and mountain to the amazing things we're still discovering now on telescopes, or the weird, cool fish that, you know, that swim in places we can't even get to yet because there's too much pressure down there. God's always had that stuff down there waiting for us to discover. And if he can make stuff that cool and that amazing out of nothing, imagine what would happen if you really gave him your life. Because nobody is a greater artist than the creator of the universe. And he is giving you an invitation tonight to hand you your life, to hand him your life. But I remind you, he's a gentleman. David never took by force Jerusalem here. He waited for invitation. And he's like, why won't you guys invite me back in? Notice what David says. I hear everybody talking about it. But why isn't anybody doing it? And as a priest for the moment here, called as a representative of God, trying to represent, seeking to represent God to you. Can I say the words still apply? Jesus is going, look at. I hear a lot of people talking about it. But why aren't you doing it? And for some of us, he could say, we've been so intimate. We've had these amazing moments of praise and worship and prayer and in the word and in fellowship. You know how amazing it is to be there. You should be the first to jump at this. But maybe you've never had that. He'd still say, you've heard it now. What are you going to do with it? And tonight, we could all walk out of here brand new people. And if we were willing to let Jesus take the throne of our lives, watch what happens with the Shemais. All that condemnation that you live in right now. Watch all of that be silenced. Watch what happens with the deceivers like Zebas as God starts to put truth and pour truth on that. Watch what happens with the things you've been chasing after that really, to be honest, God in his kindness has not allowed you to get because it really isn't going to satisfy. And you start to realize, this is foolish. Why am I chasing after this? And all of that happens. And there will be people who are like, you know what, we're religious. You know, we belong to a church or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but is Jesus really reigning like he should be? I can't tell you for you, but I can tell you for me. That's exactly what I want. But I can guarantee you, so the moment you say yes, he is going to grab a hold of you and set you apart, consecrate you and say, you're mine. Would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, I know that you love us and you want us and you've called us to you. You in your deep desire tonight want us to let you take your rightful place in our lives. And we recognize there are those who will claim entitlement for an idea but have no action and we don't want to be those people. I know that James tells us that even demons believe that you are but they have at least they have brains enough to shudder. Their acknowledgement causes some kind of action. How could ours not? But we recognize there is a group that's more resolute, more firm. Because they don't just hear, they do. And they don't just acknowledge that you should be on the throne. They invite you across. They invite you in. And tonight I just want to say, Jesus, please take the throne of my life, the throne of my heart. Please be Lord over all of me, not just some, but all of me. I recognize you died on the cross to pay for all of my sins, every one of them. But as you rose again, you have the right to be my Lord. 
And so I just invite you as the ender of my old life at the cross, but also the Lord of my new life at the resurrection. Let me be that new creation you intend for me to be and be the Lord of it, I pray. I hand you the clay of my life and ask you to shape it into the most beautiful thing where it doesn't just look cool or act cool or be cool, but where it's used for lives to come. And I just want to tell you, Jesus, thank you for paying the price. My King of Kings, thank you for paying the price. And thank you for inviting me to give me the privilege and the dignity of choosing for which I choose you. Please be everything to me now, I pray in your name. And if you agree with that prayer tonight, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, I pray for every person who has amen that prayer, amen that prayer tonight. You tell us that when one sinner repents, comes to, that all your angels in heaven rejoice. Let them hear that even now. Let them hear you call them yours. Put that peace that they're hungry for and that joy that they're starving for in their lives or reiterated back in their lives. Reinsert it. And make us brand new in here and prepare us now, Lord, to be a witness to the rest of the world around us. Thank you, God, so much for the privilege of being able to do this. Now, Lord, light us up for the night around us. In Jesus' name.